In the early part of the 20th century, over 30 states took part in a social movement that used forced sterilization on Americans deemed genetically inferior. North Carolina was one of the first states to implement the eugenics program, but also one of the first to try to seek justice for victims. A new film tracks their efforts. Good morning. This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. On this week's show, I talk with filmmaker Dawn Sinclair Shapiro. Her documentary, The State of Eugenics, was recently screened at Fordham University. Welcome, Dawn. Thanks for having me. So let's start with a little history. Describe what happened in the early part of the 1900s that prompted the use of eugenics. So eugenics kind of comes across the pond, if you will. From England? From England, yep. Mm -hmm. And it kind of lands here at this interesting time. It's the turn of the century. There's, you know, lots of progress is being made. And then there's all these different um, kind of scientific investigations. And people are open to looking at science in a whole different way. And when eugenics lands over, it comes as sort of a belief system and sort of a framework of making the, the human gene pool better stronger, perfect. It is adapted really around 1910 in a formal way in what's called um, the Eugenics Record Board Office. And that is a kind of laboratory, if you will, based out in Long Island that breaks into two areas. It's working in this area of trying to get an actual law, to get legal reform efforts to mandate sterilization of the unfit essentially negative eugenics, preventing certain people from procreating. And then the other part is they're also working on this science of eugenics that would essentially help inform the eventually the movements um, against the, the 1924 Immigration Restriction Act. There's efforts at marriage laws to allow only certain people to get married with a eugenic marriage certificate. And they're working on another front in that area to document family pedigrees and trying to trace inheritable defaults or defects in people. Epilepsy was one of them. Blindness, asthma, you know, whatever. So if um, someone had asthma or blindness, they deemed that person possibly as someone who was, quote unquote, not worthy. It could make you suspect. Yes, for mm -hmm. sure. And definitely looking at some of the um, records that were created and the family histories that are in in the ERO that you can look through, they were doing these these very comprehensive family studies of people. But again, not in your kind of gold standard study of today. It was being engineered from the beginning to really look for fault. There was nothing holistic or, you know, in terms of the way academics describe it, there's nothing rigorous about what they were doing. And so when you get to 1927, we get the Buck v. Bell Supreme Court case. And that's where this um, idea becomes a law of the land. And more than the 30 states, as you mentioned, pass statutes that enable the individual states to coercively or forcibly sterilize people who they deem unfit. And it is done supposedly for the public good. Most people, when I bring up the word eugenics, they say, oh, Nazi Germany. I'm like, well, that's what I was thinking. You know, that's engineered tall blondes with blue eyes. And that's oh, it. yeah. No, I mean, that's what I thought until I learned about the North Carolina eugenics program, which got me into researching and investigating the entire eugenics movement and how it pertained to the state of North Carolina. And then obviously the current efforts to compensate survivors that I document. So um, I think it's a, a loaded word. But if we think of it eugenics is sort of the movement, it's this belief system, and sterilization becomes the tool by which the eugenicists 
and then eventually population controllers and people just looking to prevent others that they don't like from having more children or children at all. And so sterilization is sort of the tool. And that's kind of how it helps people, I think, understand that how the program went for so long in North Carolina, because it, it wasn't necessarily the eugenics movement that was at large in the 60s and 70s. It's a pushback on the gains that the civil rights movement was making, and they're using sterilization as the tool to do that. It's like you have to have this social movement to convince people that this is the reason why it's a good thing that we're going to move forward with this sterilization. So Dawn, um, what methods were used for the selective breeding? One of the scholars in the film describes the positive and negative aspect. Right? She's, she breaks it out as positive. Positive eugenics is kind of what you saw in the UK and and also reverberating here where it was sort of pronatals. It was like promoting good childbirth amongst the fit and the good of society or who were deemed good in society. So promoting this philosophy that essentially white, well-bred women should be having as many babies. They should be baby factories, essentially, um, at the turn of the century. It was driven in many for many reasons. It was driven also in part to, if you look at the urban cities and all the immigration coming in, right? And this fear that you hear in the rhetoric and in the in the language and in the writings of, you know, the immigrants are procreating and having more children than our white women. And, and at the same time, white women are fighting for birth control. So the great phrase that has been pointed out a number of times to me and didn't make sense until I really started digging in was this uh, concept of race suicide. And that was employed on white women who either wanted to control their childbearing and weren't up for the idea of having just as many kids as their uterus could pop out. Um, and Teddy Roosevelt says that in a radio address. And you have... In a negative way or positive way? Well, in, in, in that, you know, you, to be a female in America and white and of good stock, it is your patriotic duty to have to children. Have children. lots of them. Or you're committing race Or you're suicide. committing, exactly. And so this big fear that the white race was going to be, you know, outnumbered. The idea of, you know, population reproduction, it's a number game. It's a numbers game, right? Um, still, today, I think um, we look at this you know, kind of holistically in the film and in discussions that we've had over the past few weeks screening in front of audiences, it's been great to kind of have this dialogue where I've asked the audience when, after you watch this film, and we we talk about, you know, putting a dollar amount on a human life. So when we talk about the people who were targeted in the North Carolina program, they were marginalized. They were not a voting block. Um, most of them were under the care and control of the state in some way, shape, or form. And if you were a single mom and you had children, God forbid, out of wedlock, it was presumed that then your children and especially your daughters would do the same. So we should just proactively sterilize these adolescents. And that's what you see in our film. Two of the three survivors have never had children who sterilized as adolescents. And often, because I watched your film and it was amazing, often the the people that were getting this done to them didn't know what they were getting into. It's not like you actively go into it saying, hey, I'm making an informed decision. They didn't know what was happening. So two of the uh, three survivors in our film were at an institution called the Caswell Training School. And it was sort of this catch-all for kids who were living in extreme poverty. And the condition for release is that those kids had to be sterilized before they left. Uh, both uh, Dorothy and Willis in our film are living with single moms. We learned from Dorothy, her mom sent her there in the winter because she couldn't afford heat 
and she was afraid that the kids would be cold. And, you know, you look at Willis and, and his mom had um, some of that, too. Sometimes they didn't have money for food. His story kind of crystallizes for people how systematic this process was where he's at the Caswell Training School and there's a bureaucrat in Raleigh writing letter after letter, petition after petition to get the school to put him into the pipeline for sterilization. And there is a formal petition that goes in front of a board once a month. And that board is made up of five heads of agencies, five state agencies in North Carolina would send the head or the deputy head of their state agency to sit in on the North Carolina Eugenic Board meetings to read the paragraph summary of each official petition for someone to be sterilized. But those petitions could come from the sheriff's office, physicians, social workers. Most of the people that you're going to be interacting with on a local and community level, especially if you need public assistance and to reach out for some kind of social safety net, I think um, you can understand the fear that we still talk about today um, about accessing services sometimes and for people worried that they're checking certain rights at the door if they are receiving some kind of a public assistance. If they're in need, then you have to give up some of your they rights. You have to give us your rights. And in this case, we see it as um, the right to childbear. But there's other, you know, there's a whole spectrum that you hear people articulate still today. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon, talking with filmmaker and documentarian Dawn Sinclair Shapiro about her film, The State of Eugenics. Dawn, I want to talk a little bit more about Willis, Dorothy, and Niall. Willis and Dorothy, if I remember correctly, they they weren't minorities. They were they were white. Right. Tell me a little bit more about Dorothy's story. Dorothy's kind of like who I think of everyone's kind of favorite great aunt, someone who really appealed, I think, because she doesn't identify as an activist. She doesn't identify as a victim. None of the people I will say ever give you the sense that they're a victim. They are survivors. And that's how we identify them in the film. Like to call them survivors. Yes, they call them survivor. Right. And that this was a horrible and traumatic thing that happened to them. But but it didn't define them. And we're not going to give the government the power to define them by calling an entire life, you know, a victimization. Because, yes, it's a horrible thing. And in our film, it's on their terms how they represent that. Um, but with Dorothy, I mean, I, I can't, couldn't keep up with the social <laughs> schedule. I would be calling from Chicago and she's in Greenville. And she's like, oh, I got to run. We're playing. We've got a bridge game getting ready to start. So um, I knew there was going to be ample opportunity to get in with her and feel like the flow of her day. And then the loss would just sort of unravel with her. She never went to any of the hearings. And then in the other part of the spectrum is Niall. And Niall, and she was more of an activist. She was definitely outspoken, outspoken and trailblazer brings her case to the ACLU in 1973, does not succeed in getting any kind of financial compensation, but is actually the person whose case dismantles the eugenics board in 1973, June, July. This kind of hits the national headlines. No one else is sterilized. From what we can look at the paperwork, we know that there were 14 petitions into the North Carolina Eugenics Board. You know, no one wants to speculate, but they surmise that those were frozen in June when her case hit the national headlines. So tell me about Niall. She was an African-American woman, very strong. How did you end up talking with her? So that's a great question um, because I worked uh, for about a year trying to dig up the archival footage that you see. And we were kind of building the, the survivor story to intertwine with the footage I was filming about the compensation efforts that happened between 2011 and 2013. And Niall, she really didn't want to talk 
Although really? she said, if you really want me to. Why and didn't she want to talk? She, she's like, it's so painful. But we had a lovely conversation and I never planned to ever call her again, but we just started talking. Yeah. We, I don't know. We just, we chatted. And so I said, well, look, I'm going to work with this footage and I would love to be able to send it to you really with the idea, like, you know what? She did the hard work and the heavy lifting. Now it's our turn to contextualize her story. And then a uh, year, year and a half later, film is starting to roll out. So I finally just sent her the raw footage of the press conference when she was able to watch it. And she called me. She's like, when are you coming down? And then there was that gnawing question everyone would watch and be like, well, what about Gloria? Have, has Gloria been interviewed on this topic? Gloria I, and I, Gloria Steinem. I'm like, I wonder if there are any other primary sources past the sort of um, advocacy that she'd done against sterilization abuse and done also for pairing back the regulations on women who had to have either um, their husband sign off on tubal ligations surgery or the, the women who were being submitted to um, hospital parity laws so that What's your age? How many kids have you had? And if you if you reach that number, then we'll give you the sterilization. Mm. Now, those that was a movement of primarily white middle class women um, who were done with their childbearing. Reliable contraception was still not the norm yet. It was available and some of it worked for some women and not for others. But sterilization, if you're making that choice and you're saying, oh, and I have an informed choice, it's it's different. It's informed. It's it's supported. She was working in tandem to look, you know, at preventing sterilization abuse and then um, also getting access to sterilization without this patriarchal, right? Like, hubby, can you please sign this for me? Because, you know, I don't want to have any more children. And, you know, you think, okay, well, we could talk to Gloria about that part. And then her work with Niall and advocating for and Brenda Feigen as this like rock star ACLU lawyer. And I'd already done the Brenda interview. And so when I'm on the phone with her, I'm like, well, what, what are you doing Saturday? You know, like, I, got, I got to get a crew. And I'm like, we'll be there. And she's like, great, come on down. We'll talk. And, it, and I was like, okay, I think this is the right, you know, thing to do. And so, could you back up and tell us what her story was? How did she? Oh, yeah. I mean, her story is made for Hollywood, in in my opinion. Her story is like the story of a pioneer and the story that we all would like to think that we have the nerve to do. And that is to speak truth to power and at the age of 18, finding herself pregnant and living with her mom. Her mom was single. Her siblings, who she was very close to and sort of like a second mom to, and the social worker assigned to her family came every day. Niall would tell us that she would come every day. And it's so vivid when Niall describes it. She says, I would just hear her clickety-clack coming down the sidewalk and I would shut the window and close the doors and she would have her little jacket and her briefcase. And she's like, Niall, you're pregnant. You have to agree to the surgery so that we can sterilize you. Nope, I don't want to hear it. Then the threats and the coercion start. Do you want your family to be kicked out of their home? Niall has no reason to believe that this woman can't do that. And she's misinforming her because technically by law, they couldn't do that. But the, the social workers and the people who have these decision-making powers also know when they are not information sharing properly with people and particularly with their clients. And so you hear this across the board told to women. That they're lying and, to people to force them into sterilization. Yeah. Well, if you don't agree to this. Uh, then this is what's going to hurt you and your family. And your family. And for Niall. And then, and then she wraps it around a conversation with the physician. So Niall says, okay, let me go talk to the physician. Like, so also to have the wherewithal at 18 yeah. To be like, I mean, she's such a curious, she's so pragmatic. Um, she had the wherewithal to, like, let me talk to the doctor. You know, she, like. I, but then you know, the doctor, 
he lies to her face to face and says, no, no, this is just going to be temporary. But she still, she says to you know, in the interview, she goes, there just was something not quite right. Why then were they forcing you? She uses the idea, you know, you don't get anything for free in life. And I think Niall is someone who can speak to that um, in an incredibly powerful way. And this is not informed consent, but you're still signing on the paper with misinformation, coercion. Dawn, on average, how much did the survivors get? The appropriation that eventually gets through the General Assembly in 2013, it's set up in a pie. And it's not an outright payment. It's a pie that's then divided by the survivors who are a match, the survivors would have to fill out a form and submit it to the Department of Administration in North Carolina. And then they would take your information, try and match it with those 7,600 North Carolina Eugenics Board records. And then if you were a match, you were then put into the pool. The only thing any of the survivors ever say when I talk about what are you going to do with the money, it's not go to Disneyland and it's not um, go on a holiday. They're it's who wasteful. can they, who can I help? Who's mm-hmm. who's worse off or who needs some support right now? Whether it was someone in their family or friends, all of them. And Dawn, even in your film, you talk a little about in 1921, there was a eugenics conference here in New York City. So this was extremely widespread. And then it seemed that um, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 which outlined discrimination. How did this end up being bad for African-Americans when it came to forced sterilization? It's ironic because, you know, this, the the gains that the civil rights movement was making, um, and we see it in North Carolina through this, the lens of this program, um, it was a pushback. And it was, well, we haven't given black women and their families access to social services. We haven't given them access to um, white health care institutions, uh, well, guess what? Now uh, we're going to open up if poor whites were getting this. Now you get to, as one of the scholars says, quote unquote, benefit from eugenic sterilization like they hadn't before. So put them on the map. So put them on the map and then mm-hmm. they become the feeder. And then it's done so much more aggressively. And when they look at the rates, the, the program was alive and well and going really to towards the poor whites. But there is a racial and a sinister bent, absolutely, in terms of the, the way that the numbers go up and up and the way that the cases turn around, the petitions go so quickly, and um, the kind of level of harassment. And I think that's illustrated in Niall's case because of the social worker who felt that it was her duty to come daily and harass this young woman. Um, and so that's why Niall's case is so powerful, because it's in between the voting and the Civil Rights Act. There was a time when eugenics um, was actually on the decline. But what happened in Mecklenburg County that made the number of forced sterilization shoot up? So Mecklenburg County, uh, where Charlotte is the county seat, had this overall a, a highly regarded kind of thought leader in terms of how to bring um, services and the, the kind of ideals of the progressive movement to North Carolinians who were poor and undereducated. His name is Wallace Corral. He did not believe in the faulty science of eugenics. He believed in getting people access to clean water, health care, to education. Um, he had living skill classes for women, and he was very holistic. He was flawed. But if you read a lot of the work about Wallace Corral, he saw this as a way to bring contraception to poor women. So his social workers could take it upon themselves, as many of them did, to just sterilize entire caseloads, but but it wasn't his um, mandate or intent. The goal was women inform them and give them this information of how not to have children if they don't want children. And one of the reasons I don't get into the perpetrators because they didn't they don't deserve it. I felt like I didn't want to give the perpetrators even an 
ounce a second of time in a film with our survivors. Survivors instead show their agency by reading their paperwork, by showing us these full lives that they live, the, the complete people that they are in spite of everything that was you know, brought on them as adolescents and teenagers. Um, I think the reason I went with telling the story of Wallace Crawl is because I think it's good to address something that's flawed but not evil. Yeah. And that you actually get a deeper understanding by learning about his work and going back and and revisiting what it was he was doing, what other progressives were trying to do. In your film, Dawn, The State of Eugenics, there was another name. Who is Larry Wobble and why was he so important? So he's a hero. So um, so Larry is this longtime, you know, social justice crusading lawmaker in North Carolina. He's at the Green, Greensboro sit-ins. He's, he's known... Um, I have family in North Carolina, and they're like, oh, my God, you're filming with Larry Womble? And they live, like, way out past Raleigh, too, and he's from like Forsyth. Yeah, he's, like, a rock star. And you meet him, and you're just like, oh, my God, he's got this great purple jacket. Um, and he's just, like, he just stands out. And he's energetic, and he had taken up this cause when the great investigative series comes out, a five-part series at the Winston-Salem Journal in December 2002. And what the series did and enabled Larry as a legislator is it took the primary sources from the archive that Johanna Schoen, a great researcher and historian, digs up and partners with journalists at the Winston-Salem Journal who then match those records with living survivors and also fleshing out the entire program and how it worked for 40 years in North Carolina and was underwritten in the General Assembly every two years. So then Larry Womble has this, he has this evidence now. He has something that he can bring to his fellow legislators, but they just stall and stall. And year after year, he he would reintroduce the legislation. He would go and, and talk to all of his colleagues. He would go to churches. He would he was trying to really mobilize not only the survivors, but people in the state to understand the issue and educate them on it. So it's it. like that one lawmaker who was doing the footwork. How many years did that stall? It was a decade. And uh, in 2010, the Republicans take over the House and the Senate. And suddenly there is a new speaker in town, if you will, right? And Tom Tillis had been talking with Larry Womble about this issue. He talks about how he literally walked over to Larry's office. And he's like, hey... Now that I'm in this position, why don't we do that that compensation effort that you've been working on? I have to mention John Raley. Why don't you tell us who he is and and why he's so important to this story? John Raley is, you know, that local investigative journalist who is going to stop at nothing, right? As he says, I take off my journalism hat and I put on an activist hat. Because like John said, I'm going to write about this even when people are telling me to stop writing about this. No one wants to hear it. What was it? He did a column on it every week? Yeah, in 2012. Every yeah. <laughs> week. And people were saying, okay, stop. We don't, you, you know, you're, it's oversaturation. We want to hear it anymore. Nope. He kept doing it. He kept writing about this issue. And he would always say, you know, the survivors are the ones that energize me. And then I say, well, it's really John Raley and the survivors and Larry Womble who get me energized. And I have to give credit to Tom Tillis because while he doesn't, you know, he's a Republican coming at this from a kind of conservative libertarian. He, he says this is about property rights. Your body is your ultimate property rights. And we could get into all sorts of discussions, right, with that. And, you know, I'm staying my straight and narrow. My access is about compensation and um, how do they get there. But he 
he would never speak, he, he would never pretend or fake kind of, uh, relationships with the survivors. Um, he articulates how he feels for them. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that was a real honesty because Larry has that voice and the survivors have that voice. And he stays really true to what his calling is on this. And it comes from his own inner social justice. And as he you know, said in a panel we were on last night in D.C., um, he goes, I was getting left and right from my conservative um, colleagues. Um, this is just do good or liberalism. And why are you wrapping us and you and, and everything all in it? It's like, is this going to go be bad for you? And and and, and I think, you know, he, to give him credit, too, he was willing to kind of buck the system and fight within his own caucus. Um and it took horse trading, right? It was there was no outright bill that ever was going to get done in North Carolina. I mean, this is south of the Mason-Dixon line, and it, this is a fine line for people down there when you say reparations and compensation. So I want to ask you, Dawn. At the end, Nile didn't get any compensation. Dorothy May. Did she get compensation? So any of the survivors who were officially part of the North Carolina Eugenics Board program did receive compensation if they met the living threat. There was a date start to finish that the survivor had to actually be living um, to receive compensation. And all three survivors do live to see their first checks. And I want to uh, piggyback on that by asking you, do you remember what you asked Willis Lynch at the end of your film, about the check he received. Yeah, so part of staying on the story for five years was taking these storylines to their natural conclusions. And that meant when the checks get in the hands of these people. And it it was months. You know, he called me and said, uh, I got the check. We got on the plane the next morning, and we get there, and he is just beaming. I asked him, I said, would, you know, if you could give the money back and have a kid, he's like, heck yeah. Like, if I could have my own kids, I love kids. And there's some sense that something right happened, and we can have some faith in our process, right? And we, we should have faith in our democratic process. But it's that moment, and that's why we kind of finish out the film with him um, just it's kind of sharing that. that. It's still not Just stings still a little bit, yeah. yeah. Yeah, not quite right. Hey, Dawn, have you been able to show the film in North Carolina? Yeah. What was the reception? It was uh, it was great. There was laughing. What did I say? Laughing, crying, applauding, hooraying, and like. And speaking to like our journalist John Raley and Larry Womble, John Raley's up there like, we got to get the North Carolina Supreme Court to get these cases heard so this program can wrap up and these survivors can have their final checks. I mean, he's still out there advocating, right? And I'm just like, you go. Not done yet. <laughs> Not done. Not done yet. <laughs> so, Dawn, what's happening now in California? When we look at like the states that were most egregious after World War II and kept these programs going through the early to mid or late 70s, those four states are Virginia, Georgia, North Carolina, and California. And California is interesting now because recently a scholar out at University of Michigan, Alexandra Minna Stern, has a new archive of eugenic sterilization records very similar to the records that you see from the North Carolina Eugenics Board that Johanna Schoen uses to then partner with journalists to, 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 to create the data set, if you will, right? For Larry to then say, here's, here's the primary sources and here's the living survivors that journalists would track down. And we know there's more. And that's what the epidemiologists and medical historians working with her estimate there could be upwards of 800 living survivors from California's program under a similar statute. And she and I are collaborating over the last few weeks about taking the film to California to try and screen and educate both constituents and members of the General Assembly 
and to see if they're able to gain traction. You're seeing um, an op-ed actually in the L.A. Times this week uh, came out. And I think the, the goal is to use this film, which we couldn't have told you that before you make these stories, you want to tell them. And then suddenly you realize these, these, these histories are popping up everywhere, whether it's eugenic sterilization, right, where we are reexamining and revisiting. And then you have this scholarly, factual based um, archive and approach to trying to really seek out the survivors, I mean, they have, a, they have a political roadmap, if you looked at what they did in North Carolina, to see if any of that's applicable for the General Assembly in California and if it if it works. Speaking of seeing your films, where can my listeners view your film? Okay, so the, the film began airing nationwide on the series Real South, R-E-E-L South, like film reels, right? And um, and then it's online for a few months at pbs.org, Real South. And we're really trying to encourage people to go to our website, go to the PBS site, let us know what your thoughts are. Um, how did this story impact you? Did we teach you something you thought you already knew or that you tell me, tell, did we tell you something that you didn't already know, which is to me the hallmark of a good documentary, good story in general. And um getting uh, as much kind of knowledge and understanding of this issue so that not only does it not repeat itself, but the, the groundwork that's laid through the scholars, the, sto- the stories from survivors, the journalism, that that little mix of stew can be applied to any historical wrong. And when you have these, these you know, kind of guiding principles that we can all agree on, on something, find some common ground. We might have different worldviews, but if we also can just find where are those little bits of agreement that maybe we can just kind of work together and voices can actually be heard, that in the noise and polarization today uh, doesn't really happen. And you got to see two politicians from different sides of the aisle in North Carolina, one of the most contentious states between 2011 and 2014, come together. Um, so if they can do it, maybe there's hope. My thanks to filmmaker Dawn Sinclair Shapiro. Her documentary, The State of Eugenics, is out now at Real South at PBS. You can like Fordham Conversations on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter and catch up on shows you've missed with our weekly podcast. For WFUV's Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon.